I invite you at the beginning to open your Bible to Psalm 145. And I say that will be the beginning. Uh, it will not be where we end. And so be prepared to turn to a couple places today. If this is your first time with us, we are going through a series called Love Care Communicate. And we are going through that because it is the defined mission statement of Lakeside Christian Church, and this is our time together at the beginning of a new year to ask, why are we here, what are we doing, and where are we going? We feel that all of these questions are important for us to think through, and so if you're a visitor with us today, you get to hear the conversation, but we hope not only hear it, uh, but join it. But especially for those of you that consider Lakeside your home, we do want this to be a, a corporate time of thinking together and praying together through our mission statement, but because it is just that, our mission. We've intentionally defined the mission in such a way that no one of us could fulfill this alone. We must be about doing this together in order for this mission to be completed. And so as we go through this series, we're on the second part of love, and then next week will be care uh, in two parts, and then following that will be communicate in two parts. And so we ask you, if you miss any part of it, uh, to try. We'll put the the sermons up on the website, or we can provide the, the outline to you at least so that you can be going through this in a very intentional way as we're going through it together as a church family. And as we said last last time, we say it again this time, we ask you to listen thoroughly and to listen critically. Realize we cannot say everything in one message, and so we ask you to listen thoroughly, but we also ask you to listen critically. We want your minds and hearts and imaginations involved in the formation of our understanding of, again, why we're here, what we're doing, and where we're going. But in Love Part 1, we said uh, we're describing our upward journey of our personal commitment and corporate worship of God. That as Jesus summarized the great commandments, he said the first was to love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. That one of the distinctives of, of our times together and our identity as Lakeside Christian Church is that we are a people loving God with all of our heart and all of our soul and mind. In other words, the focus of our time together is not supposed to be upon us or even what we're trying to do, but our focus is to be upon God, who he is, what he's trying to do, and joining together in the declaration of that. And we looked at Revelation uh, chapter 4 and chapter 5 last time, and the song that we just finished singing, Revelation song, pulls the words from both of those chapters And so we just had time together declaring truths about God, that he is holy, that he is eternal, that he's powerful, that he is so much more interesting than you and I are. And worship is so much better when it is focused upon God and not upon ourselves. In love part two, the transitional verse from who God is to then the way in which we worship the God who is, is found in verse 3 of Psalm 145. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. Great is the Lord is what we talked about last week, that our time together is to magnify his greatness 
Then this verse challenges us and says, if we really believe that the Lord is great, then it should follow that we greatly praise him. And it goes further to say, now, the greatness of the Lord is an unsearchable greatness. And so the challenge for us in our expression of our love for God and the declaration of his greatness, do we do it in a way that could be described here in Psalm 145, verse 3? This is a place where they not only believe that God is great, but they try in great ways to worship him. And then from there, I'd like to take you back to Matthew to the summary of Jesus' statement in Matthew 22, to love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. And this will help us to describe this greatness that God desires from us in worship. But the first question that we've asked ourselves that's there in the outline for you is how should our worship of God be informed by the word of God? How should our worship of God be informed by the word of God? And if we, as we saw last time, that the word of God is the primary way in which we learn about the God who is, And so our ability to to say things about him and his greatness and his his love and his redemption, his compassion, if, if our ability to say all of those things flows from the word of God, it should follow that the primary way we know about how to worship this God is through his word. But if our time of worship is really just our time of getting together and defining our what pleases us and what meets our needs, then the word of God is kind of secondary. When we get together to worship, we ask ourselves, well, what do we like? What's our preference? What's our style? What's our way of doing things? And that becomes central for defining how, and how we worship God. But if we say that worship is not about us and satisfying and ultimately meeting our needs, but the declaring and ascribing worth to God, then we ask the question very seriously, well, how does God want to be worshiped? How does he want to be addressed? Irrespective of our style, our preferences, our culture, what are the ways in which he wants to be acknowledged and declared? And so if worship is about honoring and glorifying and pleasing God, then we must look to his word as our guide for worship. Isn't it interesting? The first five books of the Pentateuch in the Old Testament are just as much a story of the people of God as they are then specific instructions on how those people are to worship the God that the story's all about. I mean, how do you explain Leviticus and Numbers, the second half of the book of Exodus? They're all descriptions of the way in which the people of God are to worship him. And so we see that the word of God doesn't, not only seeks to present God to us, but to provide for us, if we're willing, a way in which we can worship him. And so the question, how should we worship God? The way in which we should do it. We find in Jesus' summary statement in Matthew 22, an all-encompassing definition. You shall love the Lord your God, in verse 37, with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind with all your heart, with all of your emotions, 
That inside of you, where you express your joy and your anger, your guilt and your regret, your, your passion, do you worship God with all of that? See, some of us have been reared in a context where we believe that it's appropriate maybe to sing about God, to, to say things about God, but not really to express a whole lot of positive emotion in that singing or expressing. We would feel very awkward to just start either dancing in a pew or, or raising our hands in the, expre- in the bodily expression of joy in our worship. And then it's interesting, you, you read different sociology books and they'll explain it based on cultures and you know, some cultures do it this way and some do it this, this way. And I've happened that almost every time I've been at some major sporting event, I look around and it doesn't seem that there's a significant cultural distinction in who raises their hands and screams and who doesn't. If you value what's going on and you get excited about it and you have a sense of identity in it, you express the joy and the anger in some way that it's visible in your body, either in disappointment or in joy. And when God says that we are to love him with all of our heart, the question is why do we, if we struggle with this, in our times of worship, why are we content to worship him in an intellectual way, but we don't feel it's appropriate to express our emotions in a way that matches what our intellects are telling us? Now, some of us might be okay with the sort of the positive element of worshiping God with our hearts in that we can get excited in worship and we can clap just like anybody, we can move around just like anybody else, but what we've been told is that it's inappropriate to bring our strong negative emotions to God and that we really have to sugarcoat if we're frustrated or confused or angry at something that we're experiencing, that when we get into a posture of prayer, we develop this language that is unnatural to our emotions. <laughs> you know, I, I didn't hear it for a while, but then I heard it recently. I'm like, wow, that used to happen a lot, and I, I just I got out of that. But that when somebody went into a position of prayer, their language just changed drastically, and they went into the these and the thous. Never talking in prayer like they just talk to another person. And oftentimes we can bring that even with our our negative experiences where we come to God and say, hey, just wondering what you're doing. Whereas if we're talking to another individual, there'd be a lot more emotion in it saying, what in the world were you thinking? Did you see that? Did that happen under your watch? And even to sort of talk in that posture is awkward. It's uncomfortable for us. But read the first two chapters of the book of Habakkuk, where Habakkuk says to God, your eyes are so pure that they can't look upon evil. And oftentimes, if you just sort of pick out a systematic theology, they'll they'll use that as a way of developing God's purity. But for Habakkuk, that truth that God's eyes are too pure to behold evil become an argument that he makes and it adds to the confusion of his prayer to say, if your eyes are too pure to behold evil, then why is everything I'm looking at evil? And he brings his honest emotions to God in anger and frustration and says, please help me understand this. Now, 
Again, I don't know where you come from and and which one of these, if any of these, are a struggle for you, but Jesus is making clear that we are to worship God in sincerity with all of our heart, positively and negatively. Do you trust God enough that you can honestly speak to him in a way that expresses exactly what you feel, even if those feelings are negative? And do you get excited ever about God enough that that expression of excitement can reflect itself in some physical uh, either fluctuation of voice or movement of body that you are so happy to worship him that you cannot contain it? But he says, do you love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind? If great is the Lord, then he's greatly to be praised. And then there's a sort of a, a volitional component to this with all Your soul. Do we worship God then with our lives? Do our hands worship God, figuratively speaking? Do we walk from here and want to do great things for God? Or when we say great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, what we mean is, okay, I sang really loud today and I really got into the worship. And then we go into Monday and we're presented with a challenge to say, I really feel like I'm supposed to take this step in faith. Maybe quit this job in order to take this one. Maybe move from this city to go to another city. I feel this calling, but no, I'm not going to do it. No, I'm just, I'm really comfortable where I'm at. And wow, there's so much risk if I were to take this step or that step. And we never worship God greatly with our actions. We never try to do something that's new or uncomfortable. We give him in a a set-apart room a strong expression of praise. But when we are the minority in a room... And nobody else gets excited about him. Nobody else goes to him with their prayers. We never in that context are willing to take a risk and magnify his name. And again, here, this this definition of worship by our Lord does not allow us to compartmentalize our worship and to think that we're worshiping God by coming together and either making great noise about him, but our lives are detached from that. If the first and greatest commandment is authentic, genuine worship that encompasses all of who we are, then the first and greatest offense is superficial worship that does not. And therefore, if we read on into chapter 23 of Matthew's gospel, you'll see Jesus talking to a group of people who are experts at superficial worship. And all the woes he gives to the scribes and Pharisees who worship them with their lips, but their hearts are far from him. They don't actually care about the things of God. They're good at doing religious services. They're good at being on time and showing up when the doors are always open. They're good at all those things, but caring about another human being is something they happen to struggle with. And Jesus says, I'm not interested in hearing you sing me a song about my love when you're so closed-hearted to ever express that love to someone else. And so the challenge is, are we loving God with all of our heart and with all of our soul and with all of our mind? Do we desire intellectually to know more about God, to learn more about him? And not just to apply our minds in a great way in studying God, but to apply our minds in anything else in a great and significant way. To learn. See, you and I will almost always be graded on a curve. Almost always graded in a way that compares our abilities to the abilities of those around us. 
but some of you, and I know it because I know you and I talk to you, I, you could just walk through your classes and just get A's or walk through your job and always get the promotion because you're better than somebody else. But if you didn't compare yourself for a moment to somebody else, but to what you were capable of doing, you're not challenging yourself. And there's no motive to challenge yourself because you're doing enough to be ahead of other people. But what you have the ability to learn, and you really experience it when you're dealing with someone who doesn't have the ability to learn. And it, it, you can give the person another book and, and they can't read it with comprehension. And then you look at so many of us who can read certain things with comprehension or can play music a certain way and say, why did you content yourself with sticking with Dr. Seuss? I mean, it's great. There's profound things in it, but if you have the ability to go beyond that, are you desiring to exercise your mind in any greater capacity? There are some who can't get even to that level. It's difficult for them. Is there a desire, if that's not a particular struggle of yours or mine, to grow in such a way that we reach new intellectual heights that we do not have right now? I was listening to a Christian financial counselor earlier the week, and uh, it was great. He just said, really, seriously, what is your goal in 2010? To be at the same intellectual level that you are right now. Now, he says it a little bit more natural. He's like, is your goal to be as dumb as you are right now? I don't want to be as dumb as I am right now. I want to learn something this year. Well, how am I going to learn something? Am I going to read anything? Am I going to commit to an intentional process of knowing more? How many times have you felt like you've dealt with a situation and you've walked away from it and said, if I just knew a little bit more, I would have made much less of a hash of it? I mean, seriously. If I could have just known a little bit more Before I got into this situation, that could have gone drastically different. Then the question is going forward, is our intention to learn from those experiences to minimize the amount of times that things go wrong because of ignorance or misunderstanding? Enough things are going to go wrong because of sinful motives and circumstances outside of our control. There's enough Stuff, if you will. There's enough fuel for the fire. We don't need to add the fuel of continued ignorance and laziness in our pursuit such that it never becomes true of Lakeside what was true as Paul wrote or whoever wrote Hebrews to say to them, I I long to give you more, but I couldn't. I had to keep coming back to the elementary things. But believe me, there's so much more that I long to share with you. But you, you just weren't ready for them because you are content with the simple things. And in those ways, we have to grow our appetites to desire and to crave something else. But this is worship that encompasses all of who we are, the way of worship, that great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is worthy that he is worshiped with all of our being. Our emotions, our heart, our actions and hands and our mind in the growth of our intellect? Do we worship him in that way? When we say, how should we worship God the what? We turn to Acts chapter two. And so I'll ask everyone to turn to Acts chapter two.
<clears throat> so far, we've described the way of worship. And we've said it's a, it's a personal thing. Uh, we can say it now sort of in transition. Isn't it interesting that when Jesus summarized the commandments, he said, love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind, not obey the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind, or submit to the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and your mind, or follow. He used the word love in the summary of all the commandments intended to communicate, that God is interested in interacting with us in relational terms. Now, Realize as well that Jesus would have used the word love in a way different than us in that love would have meant actions, not just sentimental feelings. And so obedience would have been a part of it. Submission would have been a part of it. Following would have been a part of it. But still, the emphasis on love is that the God who is and who is great interacts with us in relational terms. Desiring to have uh, communion with us and relationship with us not simply to force, uh, force himself upon any one of us. And so if God desires worship in relational terms, then that is where superficial worship or forced worship becomes offensive. Because that's not the goal. The desire is a relationship with actual persons, not the coercion of noise. God could turn the radio on just as much as you and I could. But he's not interested just in volume. He's interested in hearts, people that love him, that care about him, that desire to be with him. And while we emphasize that God is relational toward us and therefore worship is always personal, personal does not mean private. Personal does not mean private. The faith that we express and the worship that we offer is to be a public and corporate experience. While it is personally to be believed and committed to, it is always to be publicly proclaimed. And this is what we read when we pick up on verse 37 of Acts chapter 2. This is after Peter's sermon, one of the first sermons, if you will, in the history of the church. And then the question is, there's an immediate question of people actually wanting to respond to this sermon, but then there's a description of what worship to look like among the community of the believers in its earliest days, as it would have been identified after the resurrection. <clears throat> so this is sort of the, the summary in verse 36 of Peter's sermon. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you've crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, and awe came upon every soul. 
and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So we looked at this passage and we ask ourselves, how did these people who were confronted by the God that we worship then worship him? And how in the way in which they worshiped him do we find insight for the ways in which we are to worship him today? One of these immediate responses was, Peter says, repent. That there needs to be a place and a location where people are confronted and challenged and held accountable to repent from sin. He moves on and says, be baptized. Again, there needs to be a place. Baptism is a public proclamation, not a private ceremony where someone identifies themselves to other people as being a follower of God, as one who has repented from sin and come together. And then there is this commitment, this devotion to the apostles' teaching. So again, the mind is engaged. Scriptures are read together. There is fellowship with one another. There is the sharing of meals. There is praying together. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. There's a financial component to this. There's a willingness to give to other people when you see them in need. That in committing to one another and in worshiping God together is the taking care of the people that God loves and takes care of. That as John referenced in his prayer in Psalm 23, the shepherd who provides for his sheep, do we then in the worship of that shepherd accept the responsibility upon ourselves to care for and join God in the caring for of other people? And this is something that was common to them. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need and day by day attending the temple together breaking bread in their homes they received their food with gladness all of these components of worship of time together uh, around a meal in a home of gathering together in a place of worship in the expression of prayers in songs in the specific special ceremonies of baptism in the in the receiving of the gifts of the holy spirit all of those things are corporate aspects of our worship together that as god has In redeeming us, united us to himself, he's also united us to every other person that is redeemed. That we are a family and that we belong together. And while our faith is personal and it's voluntary, it is not private and isolated from other people. And so how, in what ways do we make time to devote ourselves to the apostles' teaching? And we realize uh, people have different learning styles and their ability to grow intellectually in the understanding of the apostles' teaching is different. So there isn't just one method of teaching that's given here. 
The, the, there's a limitation to the one person speaking to a, a large audience where many of you might be listening and you have a, a question right now, but you feel kind of awkward to raise your hand and ask the question. And so there's the sort of sitting in a circle in a home format or around a table in a Sunday school format where it's more interactive and questions are asked or a video is used. But all of those things, different ways of doing it, but a commitment to knowing and understanding <clears throat> the apostles' teaching the message that's been handed down to us and the specific time of fellowshipping together uh, over meals specifically. uh, And we can do that presently here in the celebration of a lunch next week. And we can do that by individuals inviting each other over for times uh, of, of meals together to get to know one another. Is that a part of our worship? Or when we come together, we're gathering together with people that we in no other way share our lives with. We just sort of run into each other on a Sunday. But we can't look to just one other individual that is here as well and say, our lives are connected much deeper than our physical location on a Sunday morning. But that person knows something about my life. I know something about their life. That person actually is able to help me in struggles in my life. I'm able to help them in struggles of their life. But all of those things, as a component of our worship, are ways in which we declare what we believe about God in his greatness in our desire to then greatly worship him. And it says that as they did this together, as they were praising God and having favor with all people, the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. It was a, it was a beautiful time in this early part of the church when their focus was upon God and not upon themselves. When they were so overwhelmed by God and who he was that when they looked at themselves, they didn't say, When I come here, how does this meet my needs and how does God do this for me and define everything around themselves but rather in allowing their worship to then be defined around God and who he was, their primary posture was one of self-sacrifice. What is it that I can give up in service to you? What is it that I can give up in service to you? Now, why is it that I could be willing to give up anything? if I have come to some conclusion that my life, as Jesus says, does not consist in the abundance of my possessions, and so while I have things, those things don't have me, and if ever it becomes appropriate for me to get rid of something in a way that can help and meet the need of another individual or in service to the king, it's all his anyway, isn't it? And that's the challenge for us. When we look at our own lives and our own time and our own abilities, intellectually, emotionally, whatever they are, if we look at them and say they're ours and we negotiate how much of this we give to God and how much we give to other areas, then we view ourselves as the owner and the master of our own destinies, which is what everything in our culture tells us is true. But if in acknowledging and believing and declaring the worth of God, we say to ourselves that we are stewards over this, that this isn't my time, this isn't my church, this isn't my money, whatever it is, it's not mine, but I have the opportunity in service to the king to be a steward of his church 
of his time, of his money, of his relationships that he is forming and of his mission. All of this is a component of the what in our worship of God and the fulfillment of Jesus' command to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. And so then the last question there on on the notes for you is how can I as an individual carry out the mission to love God in my daily life Hopefully some portion of this is spoken to you. But allow God to challenge the areas of your life where you can acknowledge that you're lacking. In other words, uh, hopefully the, the content has been broad enough that you, there's something in there that you can say, oh, I do this and I don't do that. The point of the application, though, when we walk away is to ask, what aren't we doing? Not to confirm in ourselves that, oh, we do this and therefore uh, we're really good. But what is the area of struggle? What is the area that God wants to probe into your life through his word? Maybe it is that in your worship you have not given yourself over to him entirely emotionally. And how can you do that? How can you bring all of yourself to him instead of part of yourself or maybe you're one who, who gets together regularly. You love the, the sort of the, the coming together and being a part of services and magnifying greatly the Lord in your, the volume of your voice or in the, uh, the, your attendance record, but in your connection to individuals outside of that. In the intentional building of relationships with people, that's an area of struggle. But let God into those areas to speak into them, in your life and mine, so that as we think together, as we define this as part of our mission, we again are challenging ourselves to say, are we doing what God would have us to do? And this time we conclude, as we started last time, by saying again, please understand, we never want to confuse the mission of the church with the nature of the church. We don't present these distinctives of worship as the way in which you and I earn the favor or the affection of God. This isn't a to-do list that you and I go home and say, if I do these things that I realize I'm struggling with, then God will love me more. We say unabashedly that you are loved right now in such a way that you cannot this afternoon improve that love or decrease that love. You can't because the love of God for you is based upon something outside of you and your ability and my ability to diminish it or to increase does not exist. He loves us because of who he is and we love him because he first loved us and so our mission is something that we're defining as a way in which we express our joy for what he's already done it is not our way of coming together to say how can we make ourselves good enough for god and if that is still an issue then please continue to ignore the mission of the church and wrestle with the nature of the church And ask yourself if you understand that, if you believe that deep down. 
that the God who is revealed to us in Scripture and who loves us, each and every one of us does so, outside of our ability to get an A on our scorecard when we define the mission. Because otherwise this thing will always be something that we measure one another with in sort of performance categories instead of with joy getting together and say, isn't it great that we get to love God this way because he first loved us? Let's pray. Father, we pray for your grace to instill in us your word. Father, we pray for your spirit to call to mind as we go from here the things that you are trying to speak to us, not the things that we're trying to say to each other. Father, we thank you that you first loved us that you first cared for us, that you first communicated with us. And we pray that you would continue to call us and invite us into a holistic worship of you, that no part of our hearts, our minds, or our bodies would we withhold. Father, we are your people in need of your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.